I'm over here, uh, sitting here, just having a good time, just recording with my bar. And we're going to have a good time, talk about movies or something, you know. I'm not getting paid to do anything else, except sit here and just talk. And I'm not even getting paid to do that. But, you know, just sometimes you got an internet connection and you just got to recur. You got to recur yourself. You got to re <laughs> recur your, your beans, gotta recur your ways. You know, your curds and whey, like mm -hmm. little Miss Muff sat on a top <laughs> eating her curds and whey. She was actually recurring. Recurring her podcast. <laughs> but the spotter came down and sat down beside her and frightened Miss Little, little Miss Muffet away. <laughs> oh, welcome to the Pod Charles Cinecast. I am your host, Jonathan Foster, and I am here. You may hear some sniffles. You may hear some nose blows. You may hear a cough or two, because I'm here with my little sickly boy, Phil. Sick boy. Now, sick boy forever. Phil, you were upgraded to sickly boy. I wasn't going to call you slacker boy, but. Slacker boy. All right. In spirit of today's, you know, programming. Oh. Um, but you showed up to work uh, sick. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it works. In spirit of today's program. So how's it going, Phil? Yeah, I may be sniffly. Got a little blocked node, you know, situation. Pitch going on. But I ran around in the cold earlier. Um, so my fault. <laughs> Who'd have thunk? You know, you could get sick from that. Yeah. Well, that useless shit they teach you in school and they never tell you to not go out in the cold. Um, they might have. I wasn't really paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> 15, 16 years of my life. Yeah, again, um, slacker boy, uh, not paying attention. Slacker boy. And upgraded Classic. status. To and now it made sickly. me a thickly boy. Yeah, it's all good. Perfect. I mean, yeah. And instead of a day off, I'm working. <laughs> this, is, this, this is me working. Can you not tell? Because I'm sat in bed holding a coffee. <laughs> this is me working. Nobody can tell me different. <laughs> How are you? Are you? You're not thickly. Um, good. I'm not sickly. I did wake up kind of feeling a bit rough. Groundhog Day here. For listeners out there, we record uh, breadcrumbs. You know, that <laughs> silly little podcast we do on the side. You know, um, breadcrumbscollective.com. Check it out. New website uh, where we explain all that stuff. It's a, it's a family. It's a family, Phil. A family. Our new podcast uh, collective that we started with myself and Phil. Ariane with the Drip Town Limery, Maine. She's got a new episode out that just dropped today of the day we're recording. So yeah, good stuff. I said it, I up, said it right, impressive. you know. You catch that. Right, Look yeah. at that. It was smooth. I caught it. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, Phil and I were recording and I've already told him that I had a heart a heart palpitation earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> a single That's the biggest news of the day. A single heart palpitation. Um, but I'm okay. A single heart palpitation can like ruin your day. Yeah. yeah. It was it was you know, kind of terrifying. I think it's worthy it's to terrifying. mention twice. It was just like one little <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, I felt like the way Laura Croft must have felt in Tomb Raider when she's stuck underwater. You know, like, this is it. This is the end. For you, my friend, the end. Sorry, man. I'm on some other stuff today. I don't really know what's going on. No. But it's okay, because... The theme of today is slacking off, right? You know? 
taking it one. They're they drowning. Taking an easy one for everyone out there. All the sinners, the restless sinners out there are having to, you know, kick back to do some work. And uh, why not? Or not. And there's not much news by way of the Prince Charles cinema. So listeners out there, uh, we're just going to jump right ahead into what you want to hear and what you clicked on, um, which is talking about a movie. Any movie. Any movie. <laughs> or the movie that we're going to talk about today. I got to get in the mood, Phil. I, I got to get in the mood. I got to set the scene with something from <laughs> Sweet Home Chicago. And in order to do that, I'm going to enact my powers of the host of this podcast. It's like the Insurrection Act in America, but the Insurrection Act on the podcast. It's snack time! Snack time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dusty. All right. So we're in snack time lockdown 3.0 and we're in the city of Chicago, Phil. And uh, when you go to Chicago, there's something very particularly special there that they have. And I wonder if we have the exact same thing because we both had to actually prepare our uh, snacks <laughs> um, more so than we normally would. These aren't things that can just be eaten straight away. So what do you have, Phil? No. What do you got? Well, you know, we know, you know, in celebration of this movie today, Ferris Bueller is the sausage king of Chicago. Yeah. And I am the sausage king of this podcast. I got me a veggie sausage, boy. (laughs) Nice. What brand? (laughs) A little plate with some ketchup. I think it's corn. Corn. I'll have to double check. Yeah. Smells fucking incredible. Yeah. Veggie sausages okay. are good, man. Don't sleep on it, you meat eaters out there. Don't no, honestly. Yeah. Just gonna smother it in some ketchup and yeah. then put it in my mouth. As we tend to do on nighttime. Oh, that's the stuff. <laughs> it's weird to have like a real thing on the nighttime. Yeah. Usually it's like a sweet or a biscuit or a cookie or yeah. crust or something. But this is like, you know. Almost a meal. What's that one the thing people are talking about? You know, what's a substantial meal at yeah. a pub? This is it. Just a one sausage on just, a plate with some ketchup. <laughs> this, would, this would do me. One sausage. <laughs> what do you have? So you're the king of Chicago. So I went, I went another Chicago delicacy. You know, it's not the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about pizza. It's the second thing that comes to your mind when you think about pizza. Chicago deep oh, dish. Oh, no, you didn't. From Chicago town. Deep dish pizza. <laughs> a little miniature boy. Yeah. Four cheese. That's so cute. And this is real pizza, guys. I've had pizza twice before on this podcast, and they were both in gummy form. <laughs> Never real. And they didn't taste like pizza <laughs> at all. But this, 
my friends. Doesn't really taste like pizza either. It tastes like some monstrosity that was frozen and then cooked in the oven. Are you not eating it frozen? And it just tastes like a frozen pizza because it is a frozen pizza. It's not as good as what is actually in Chicago. So, my friends, I'm, I'm just lying. It's good. I mean, come on. Frozen pizza or not, it's still kind of good. I've, I've had those. I've, I've <laughs> tried the pepperoni one, and it's really kind of that kind of sad looking. Yeah. Could I, that's funny. I've, I don't eat them like that. I actually cut them into tiny little slices. I couldn't be so bothered. It feels more like a pizza. I couldn't be bothered. But they're I cute. Was, I, it's been sitting here as well for like about 20 minutes. <laughs> Time sensitive. That's all right. Okay. So it doesn't compare to the real thing, though. It doesn't compare and to... I've had, had, Chicago I've had deep some dish pizza. deep dish pizza once in Chicago. And uh, really good. Not as good as New York style pizza. I like a thinner pizza. But deep dish is good. Me too. It's all right. Um, this though, how many absences are we going to give it? Um, you know, how many absences from school are we going to give it? It's a, a meager two out of five absences. <laughs> it's okay. Wow. It's that right. a little harsh. Come on, man. I mean, come on. I know it's, you know, I don't <laughs> know. my, my, uh, I know. ability to accept pizza on a high scale has kind of gone downhill when I start making pizza at home. You know, and now I'm a snob. You're right. So I've still yet to do that. I've made we've made some bread, but we haven't taken a leap and tried pizza. But we got we're gonna, and then we'll see. We might ruin pizza for itself. Cause then it's yeah. like you can't go back. Well, I give mine. Make your own pizza, people. How many? Damn the months? man! Make your own pizza. <laughs> I'm giving it a. I'm giving it a perfect five. A perfect five. Warm. It's filling. It was made lovingly. It was, <laughs> it's great. great big fan and this was like a last minute thing i you know i did not have this prepared so as you could tell yeah as i could tell you did not have that prepared (laughs) no you did not have dusty just ruined your whole bring that in um actually you know what i feel because i'm hungry i'm giving it one extra it'll have a three because it's all right three three i can live with that phil we've said the name a couple times we know today's film is set in chicago so what film is it? Bueller. Bueller. It's the Ferris Bueller day off. <laughs> I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. What is so dangerous about a character like Ferris Bueller is he gives good kids bad ideas. Why should he get to skip school when everybody else has to go? Syphilitic meningitis. He never gets caught. This guy in my biology class said that if Ferris dies, he's giving his eyes to Stevie Wonder. Well, he's very popular, Ed. I recall Central Park in fall. Ferris Bueller, do you know him? Yeah, he's getting me out of summer school. They think he's a righteous dude. Think he'll be alive this weekend? I can see him denying popular beliefs, setting off on some impossible mission jeopardizes my ability to effectively govern this student body. 
He does whatever he wants. You know, as long as I've known him, everything works for him. Whatever he wants. He's very cool, and he never gets nailed. Ferris can do anything. Oh, he's such a sweet. Wake up and smell the coffee, Mrs. Bueller. It's a fool's paradise. He is just leading you down the primrose path. Matthew Broderick. Bueller. Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Because life is too beautiful a thing to waste. High school slacker Ferris Bueller, Matthew Broderick, pretends to be sick to skip school and have an exciting day off alongside his girlfriend Sloan Peterson, Mia Sarah, and his best buddy Cameron, Alan Ruck, through the city of Chicago while trying to outwit his obsessive school principal, Jeffrey Jones. Alarms are gone off. Oh, fuck. I forgot about this. Alarms are gone yeah. off. And his jealous sister, Jeannie, Jennifer Grey, along the way. It's the 1986 teen comedy classic written and directed. Once again, here we go. Our boy, John Hughes. This is a John Hughes podcast. John Hughes becoming the new De Palma. <laughs> Hot takes off the gate, Phil. Ferris Bueller's day off. Where, where is this movie set again? Chicago. Da bears. Da My heart palpitations coming back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's the deep dish. Oh, Chicago. <laughs> you betrayed me. Hot take. That feels great. Right? I go back and forth on Ferris Bueller. It's weird, but the older I get, the more I think I appreciate it. Because it, I think I remember really liking it the first time I saw it, and then rewatching it and being like, this isn't as good as I remember. But now I watch it, and I enjoy it more as a grown-up looking back on it. Yeah. Because that's the, uh, the thing that sticks with me most with Ferris Bueller. Really fun movie. It's really great. really sort of chaotic and stylish and simple and weird, but it there's such more than some of his other movies, there's a real underlying sadness in Ferris Bueller that the older I get the more I connect to. Like with whether it be with Cameron's like full on depression. Yeah. Or this idea that, you know, Ferris and Sloan probably won't stay together. Yeah. So it becomes more about just a day off and more a lot sort of stand for your childhood. Yeah. For fun. Yeah. Before yeah. growing up, before taking the next leap. So like now I see all those moments in the movie that make me really appreciate it. Appreciate it. And it's great. It's one of, so in that case, in that regard, it sort of, it becomes like an underdog for one of his best because it's not an obviously Great, if that makes sense. With your own, with, as the other ones are. It took me a while for it to hit, I feel like. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, like, I don't really remember what we said our favorites were a couple of episodes back uh, with the Thanksgiving. Um, our Thanksgiving episode with planes, trains, and automobiles. Automobiles, planes, trains, and automobiles. Uh, <laughs> and Oldsmobiles. Um, we. <laughs> 
we were talking about uh, what was our favorite John Hughes films. And I don't really remember what you said was your favorite. I know I think I said Breakfast Club is like... I think I said either Breakfast Club or Plane Train. I'm trying to yeah. separate. I think I'm trying to do both. I was like, of the yeah. teen movie, obviously <laughs> Breakfast Club. And but I'm quite fond of playing train and Uncle Buck for that matter. Yeah, yeah. It, it I think it'd be a top up between those three. Yeah, but this one comes in like strong, man. Like there's things about it that I don't. I, I often kind of forget about, like or, or at least this time around watching it. I, you know, I recently watched it back in April or May or something like that. Like uh, we were kind of doing like a little thing for the cinema, like. Uh, um, like a watch along thing mm. on Netflix with some people and stuff. And I remember kind of like watching it then, but I was also kind of chatting along and stuff, not really fully paying attention. And it had been quite a few years since I'd seen it. So like watching it this time, it was like, I was a little bit more attention, like, you know, t- to details. And uh, I, I kind of forgot how, obviously like I always noticed that Ferris is kind of a dick, but uh, of course, but I kind of forgot <laughs> how, much of a dick he is like just the fact that he he's kind of like complaining throughout the film a lot about his like not having a car and there's some very interesting things that come into play with this and i'll get to him a little later but yeah like it's weird like ferris bueller is kind of an asshole but matthew broderick plays him to be so likable it's such a like a weird thing to deal with where you're like sure. watching this film about this kid who's kind of a spoiled uh middle class to upper middle class teen kinda, white yeah, kid. gets yeah. away with anything and can do anything he's a bit of a magician which is kind of fun as well he's like like infallible he can kind of do anything get away with anything yeah he's like if harpo marx could speak he would be ferris bueller maybe. i don't know <laughs> you know what i mean like he could do anything it's amazing uh, i know what you mean it's fun I, I think the film got a uh, self-aware streak with that yeah i mean i think you're right matthew budget does a lot to make him likable mm-hmm. and he thought of you know one of those movie characters and he's like that asshole you kind of want to be everyone kind of wishes they could be a ferris bueller a little bit yeah but like it's the sister the whole time is saying that it's like, oh, he can just run around and do whatever he wants. Like, it, so it gets away with it because it knows what it's doing while she's just like constantly getting punished yeah. <laughs> for not doing anything. And then by the end, she sort of, you know, she helps him out because Ferris at the end is doing it, I think, for the right reason. Mm-hmm. And he could take a day off any time, but he chooses to take his friend out who needs it. Yeah. And take his girlfriend out who needs it. And they all, and then he needs it and he's not even aware of it. Yeah, and showed them the fucking greatest day ever. Could you even plan <laughs> a day that good? Yeah, you know what I mean. Like there happens to be a fucking fair, and you go to the museum and get to see the site and a Cubs game. Do a, a very elaborate a Cubs game. Hey, bada bada, um, and do a very elaborate rendition of Twist and Shout. It's great. Yeah, definitely. This film is possibly one of his most stylish films. John Hughes's stylish films as far as like there's so much substance and style to it. Um, the mm. use of songs, the use of uh, day bow bow. <laughs> the day bow bow song. Uh, it, oh, day bow bow. It's funny, like watching it, it's just like I just start to it goes up on my list. It's funny because I it, I always don't really think about it as being one of my favorite John Hughes films. But when I watch it, it's kind of like it is like the 
original teen comedy. Like it's the original like classic like that. You know, there of course like you know there was Breakfast Club and stuff, but there's so much like Very drama yeah. to it, and like um, this just has that like silly vibe. The way it's edited, the music behind it, and it wasn't that way from talking the to camera. Yeah, 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 definitely. It wasn't that way t- from the get go. I mean. There's a lot of stuff that it seemed like it was going on. Like they apparently had a very bad first screening and it didn't go to, down too well. And the actors thought that they had made like a dud and then they recut it. And <laughs> um, when they recut it, they decided to like, you know, change some music around and blah, blah, blah. And the next thing you know, they kind of create this like masterpiece of a, like t- a teen comedy, like the quintessential teen comedy. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Um, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> John Hughes began developing the film in 1985 amidst the impending writer's strike that year. Hughes presented the film to Paramount executive Ned Tannen with a one-sentence pitch. And he said, I want to do this movie about a kid who takes a day off from school. And that's all I know so far. <laughs> Sold. Sold. Here we go. How much money do you need? And how much actual money do you, mean, do you need? <laughs> yeah. Not just like an agreed budget that you're going to screw up over yeah. later on for? How many houses do we have to build? Yeah. Once again, as with the previous two films that we've talked about lately, (laughs) Hughes would go on to write this film at breakneck speed. Now, Phil, how fast do you think John Hughes wrote Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Three days. That's not bad. I've seen two different sources. Largely, it says six days. (laughs) <laughs> but one source did say four. So I don't know, but it was less than a week. You could say 24 hours and I would believe you. <laughs> <laughs> like I was like a madman yeah. when it comes to screenwriting. Yeah. The film's editor, Paul Hirsch, who also edited things like Star Wars A New Hope and The Empire Whoa. Strikes Back. And, you know, like almost every early film by Brian <gasps> De Palma. De Palma. <laughs> he explained that Hughes had a trance-like concentration to his script writing process, working for hours on end, and he would later shoot the film on essentially what was his first draft of the script. <laughs> He said the first uh, cut of Ferris Bueller's Day Off ended up at two hours and 45 minutes. God. Again. I mean, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was like way longer. But uh, yeah, but there's more to it. Yeah. (laughs) The original cut was longer, but this is crazy. So the shortening of the script had come in the cutting room. Having the story episodic and uh, taking place in one day meant the characters were wearing the same clothes. And he says, I suspect that Hughes writes his scripts with few, if any, costume changes just so that he can have that kind of freedom in editing. <laughs> that would Smart. make a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, John Hughes intended the movie to be more focused on characters rather than the plot. He says, I know how the movie begins. I know how it ends. I don't ever know the rest, but that doesn't seem to matter. It's not the events that are important. It's the <laughs> characters going through the event. 
Therefore, I make them as full and as real as I can. This time around, I wanted to create a character who could handle everyone and everything. I think he did. I mean, Ferris, like I said, he's a, he's a magician. Yeah, he Ferris is like the 80s comedy. I mean, comedy icon change decade to decade, like what people like out of people. From, you know, like the screwballs and stuff. And in the 80s, it was like Bill Murray. It was the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. Who could get out of anything, who could talk his way out of anything. It wasn't someone who was big and tough. It was the funniest person there. And first feel like, is that, but just a teenage version. Like yeah. you have that feeling that like um, Ferris is going to go on to do amazing things if he ever like gets an act together. Yeah. Or like he's smart, but not in the not in the way people appreciate. <laughs> yeah. Because he's not book, he's book smart. He's tweet smart. I also get the, the gist that Ferris would potentially do great things as far as his bank account, but also probably do some very terrible things. <laughs> I imagine Ferris Bueller could become like a Jordan Belfort, Wolf of Wall Street type guy. Yeah. Imagine him being a Trump supporter, defending his lawn with a fucking AK-47, you know, 35 years down the road. <laughs> I took a day off for this. You know, John Hughes was a big Republican, right? <laughs> Why why do you say things like that I to don't me? Know, you man. know, they just upset me. This is what happens when you <laughs> do a podcast and you dig a little too deep sometimes and uh you find out that people like God him and another man that we'll talk about in a little bit are kind of uh dumb Republicans, but whatever. You know, whatever, whatever. They're not dumb. They're not dumb. They it's just have a difference of opinion and they like to they like their free speech. They like their guns. Oh. That's true. It's Matthew Broderick Republican? No, he's just not. A, uh, he's not. Just a just a killer. <laughs> a Oof. Oh, you Oof. read my script? Are you jumping maybe next, ahead? Maybe. <laughs> oh, maybe next week. <laughs> the character of Ferris Bueller is said to be based on uh, one of John Hughes's childhood friends named Edward McNally. McNally grew up on the same street as Hughes, and he had a best friend named Bueller. And he was relentlessly pursued by the school dean over his truancy, which amounted to be about 27 days absent. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. That's, that's some, that's a call for someone to be like, come on, man, what's going on? I mean, nine days. (laughs) Are you really that thick? This guy, like, I mean, we'll get to that in a second, but it's God, nine days. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Come on. Come on. Yeah. I mean, but we know there's more at play with the Dean. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the cast. Matthew Broderick, Ferris Bueller. Where are you going at? Is this one of Matthew Broderick's like best roles ever? I'd argue it might be his only good role. <laughs> See you next Matthew week, Broderick folks. is a weird one, dude, because he'd been, he'd been in a, a few good movies. But I not I'm not always convinced if he's a good actor or not. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I think it's just his personality is kind of stilted a little bit, mm-hmm. so it sometimes it can feel a little scripted. Yeah. Um. But he's great. He's great, and this is probably his best role. Yeah. I think it's the most free I've seen his character. Cable Guy is another one. Mm-hmm. Um. The producer he's great in. He's great in Election. Um. He's great in Inspector Gadget. And even Godzilla, even the movie is terrible. He's good in it. So, but yeah, no, this is easily. Yeah. Easily. <laughs> this is just easily the, 
the best the best role for him. Johnny, you said that Broderick uh, he had Broderick in mind when he wrote the screenplay, thinking he was the only actor that could pull off the role, calling him clever and charming. He said certain guys would have played Ferris and you would have thought, where's my what? He said, I had to have that look. That charm had to come through. Jimmy Stewart could have played Ferris at 15. I needed Matthew. So he kind of like <laughs> compared him to right. Jimmy Stewart. I mean, you know, this is like an early role for Matthew Broderick, but he was he was a star. I mean, he was in War Games a couple years before this, and that was like a big hit. War Games seems really good. And in, he is very yeah, good. At I actually War really games. like War Games. Yeah. So yeah. no, he he's got he's perfect. He's perfect in it. I try. I try and when I watch it, I try and imagine any other Breakfast Club kid doing it, mm-hmm. um, like a Brat Pack. And I'd love to see Judd Nelson do it, but yeah, you know, <laughs> too like rough looking. You know what I mean? Like yeah, you would never. But he needs to be, you know, like a like a clean cut kid. Yeah, that parent can that fall in love with. Yeah, Emilio Estevan could have done it. Yeah. And then you give him that Republican charm that uh, that John Hughes is like putting into his scripts. You Famous know? for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you look closely, then the Confederate flag somewhere <laughs> in this movie. I was doing a deep dive into like, uh, and I want to look a little bit more into it, but there was like stuff about just quotes and stuff and John, uh, John Hughes films that like are all just, showing the conservatism in his writing and stuff. And it's just like kind of funny. And now I want to like dive deep into that. And I was just like, have I been reading this all wrong the whole time? Uh, John, you seem like such a nice fellow. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. Don't know. Don't know. Don't know. We'll find out. We're, we're going to keep doing John Hughes movies. <laughs> John Hughes podcast. The new podcast. 2.0. Is John Hughes a conservative asshole? Do we not like him anymore? Uh <laughs> <laughs> Alan Ruck has said that Anthony Michael Hall, who was previously in Vacation, 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Weird Science, was offered the role of Ferris, Funny, but turned it down. And Anthony Michael Hall also believed that the role was written for him, regardless of what John Hughes has said that it was written for uh, Matthew Broderick. <laughs> he said that he also thought the role of Ducky in Pretty in Pink was written for him as well, but he had a falling out with Hughes after Weird Science and their relationship ended. So then it went to Matthew Broderick. Interesting. That's such a shame. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. He killed it, Ducky. Definitely. <laughs> it's it's such a like Anthony Michael Hall role as Ducky. Uh Ferris, I think he had the chops. Um, I don't know if it would come off as charming. I don't know. Well, I mean, you know, Anthony Michael Hall is pretty charming, he, but it's just He's charming, but but he's always like from a disadvantage, he's always the loser, he's the nerd, yeah. or until Edward Scissorhands, outcast, <laughs> until I, or Dark Knight, yeah, you know, like he's better in those movies where like you have to get to know this kid mm-hmm. to like see all the great stuff. Like he's so funny and weird, man. Yeah, oh so funny, Definitely, but like yeah. he's just like a loser who has to like make a girl on his computer. <laughs> He played a lot oh, of maybe, losers in these maybe. films. It's a different kind of charm. Yeah. Some other actors that were considered apparently were Tom Cruise, Jim Carrey, nope. Rob Lowe, Johnny Depp, Robert Downey Jr., and Michael J. Fox. Wow. That's like a roller coaster of people. MJF could have done it. MJF could have done it for sure. I, I'm Downey could have done it. I, 
don't know if Jim Carrey had found his footing by that point. This is like Earth Girl, not Eden era Jim Carrey. Yeah. He's not there yet. Yeah. And I love Jim Carrey in that era, but I don't know if he would have been able to pull it off. But someone that could have pulled it off and apparently was the only actor seriously considered was John Cusack. Dude, I forgot about John Cusack. John Cusack could have totally pulled this off. This is one year after John Cusack did what is basically the antithesis of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Better Off Dead, one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, John Cusack basically hits all the same notes, even moments like, you know, prepping for his day, weird little things that he's doing uh, that are very much like Ferris Beats, but he is... Like Cameron, clinically depressed, almost you know, like wanting to off himself, which makes it better. And yeah, it is so good. So if you love Ferris Bueller's Day Off and if you never heard of Better Better Off Dead and you want to like an early John Cusack film, uh, pre uh, what's what's that film called? Uh, say anything? Yes, pre say anything. Go check out Better Off Dead. It is fucking funny. I love it. So John Cusack, I feel like he could have done it, man. He had like that charm, that charisma, that something about him. Yeah. But like you said, already did it. But he already did it. Yeah. He's not one to repeat himself. (laughs) You know, so Broderick, you know, whatever. He got the role and he's great in it. You know, he added a lot of improvisation to the, to the film, to the role and stuff. And uh, some of the bits that he came up with were playing the clarinet. Uh, someone spotted the <laughs> instrument on set and Matthew Broderick said that he could play it, which of course he couldn't. And he improvised the <laughs> never had one lesson. <laughs> that's funny. That's, that's the line I use. You know what? I quote this movie quite a bit. Yeah. So if that's a sign that I like it more than I'm letting on, I think so. Yeah. Like, yeah. Could I use that a lot? Never had one lesson. <laughs> Such a Groucho Marx vibe. Like I can imagine it's just the way he turn- looks at the camera and stuff. It just feels like, this is the second time I've uh, referenced to Marx Brother with this film and this character, but like it's, him out. it's just the way he like looks at the um, looks at the camera and just like never had one lesson. It's just like that timing. It just feels like Groucho, and then he improvised the coughing piano bits. <laughs> just playing. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Which hey, there we go, Chico Marx, boom. Plucking the keys. Did all them right. all. Got the three main ones. <laughs> we can move on. And he's good looking. Zeppo. There you go. According to uh, Matthew Broderick, uh, Ferris singing Duncan Shane in the shower was his idea. He said, although it's only because the brilliance of John's deciding that I should sing Duncan Shane on the float in the parade, I had never heard the song before. So I was learning it for the parade scene. So we're doing it we're doing the shower scene and I thought, well, I can do a little rehearsal and I did something with my hair t- to make it into the Mohawk. And then, you know what good directors do? They say, stop, wait until we roll. And then John Hughes put all that stuff in. <laughs> <laughs> the John Hughes, the thief. Yeah. <laughs> at well the Republican. Still in his IP. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Matthew Broderick's, Love interest in the film, his girlfriend, is the one and only Mia Sarah as Sloane Peterson. <laughs> Best role for her as well, to be honest. 
Uh, she did previously Legend. Which you love, one of your favorite movies. Which, if you want to go to patreon.com forward slash the PCC podcast, you can go check out our Legend review. Uh, it's not a review. Is it a review? I don't know. Are we doing reviews? This isn't a review show. This is a. I, this is not a review podcast. Um, <laughs> it's only a tribute. <laughs> a tribute. But anyway, yeah. we did, we have a legend episode, and uh, I like Mia Sarah a lot. But she hasn't had like a crazy career, and it's always sort of surprising, you know. Like we talk about, man, Time Cop. Time Cop. Come on. Shift in time. Shift in time. Cop. She's had three roles that people remember. It was Sloan. It was from Legend, and it was Time Cop. I mean, but what else has she done? She's had a long career. She's done a lot of stuff, but it's just like no one else. I mean, nothing else. And it's just sort of like, come on, man. It's a shame. Like, she's really good in this film. She? Yeah. I don't know. All the kids are good. They got, like, really good chemistry. Yeah. And she just looks stunning as well. So it's sort of like, how is she not much bigger star? It's crazy. Um, Mia Sarah surprised John Hughes when she auditioned for the role of Sloan Peterson. She said, it, it was funny. You didn't know how old I was. And I said, and he said he wanted an older girl to play the 17 year old. He said it would take some, someone older to give her the kind of dignity that he needed. And he almost fell out of his chair when I told him I was only 18. <laughs> whoa, whoa. All I got to say is at least it's someone that wants an older, an older person, like, you know, and not the opposite. And not yeah. the opposite. No. Well, maybe uh, she God was damn it. 16. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, I mean, I don't know. You're the you're the Star Wars fan. I don't know, man. How do you sleep <laughs> at night? <laughs> <laughs> On a bed made of Ewok. <laughs> uh, Molly Ringwall wanted to play the role of Sloan. Of course, could fucking John Hughes put him yeah. in her and everything. <laughs> But according to Ringwald, John wouldn't let me do it. He said the part wasn't big enough for me. (sighs) Yet I am never. You are too (laughs) big for this role. (laughs) I never. And he was not right. Mia Sarah almost didn't play Sloan, though, because at the same time she had auditioned, she simultaneously auditioned to play Sarah in Labyrinth. (gasps) Can no. you imagine that? Her in Labyrinth instead of this? I don't think that would have been a good career we'll move. We'll make our choice. I don't think that would have been a career move. No, I think Ferris Bueller is the better move. Yeah. Like, no offense to Labyrinth. I know a lot of people love it. But it's it's like it's it has to be your cup of tea, I think. And Ferris Bueller yeah. is like the whole pot of tea. Universal. You know, it's it's like... You know, it's... It's the whole ass tea. It's the whole ass tea. It's the tea bags that you put in. It's... uh. You know, it's the, the fucking plants. It's the sun that shines down to grow those plants and the rain and all sorts of stuff. It's even the mug. <laughs> even the mug. And the mug the mug that saved Ferris on it. Yeah, it does. Save Mia from making a bad decision. <laughs> save Mia. Where is she? I don't know. We just want to make sure she's safe. <laughs> she did Legend the year before in that film. She wasn't going to do it again. Yeah. That film... To be honest, I don't know. Maybe I'm. You love it. You love that movie. She's not very good in it, to be honest. All right. I'm just going to say maybe Mia. That's why Mia Sarah doesn't get many roles. Maybe she's not actually that good. I don't know. She's good in this. She's good in this, though. 
Okay, so the person who is absolutely the star of the film and the best thing about it, Alan Ruck is Cameron Fry. I'm sorry, I'm throwing it out there, okay. but I think he's the best thing about no, this film. <laughs> I'm with you. Okay, here is where I would say, why didn't he get more? Yes. Because after this, I only see him in like side, like like really small parts. Like he's in, the second thing I think of is fucking speed. Yeah. And he's just one of the guys on the bus. And a few other things. Mostly when he's older, but like Cameron is an amazing character and he played so well. He was in Twister. So sad. Come on, man. It's great. Twistered. He is he is in Twister. He has the go. most bit role in Twister though, so it's like, nah. <laughs> yeah. He was in Spin City. Great, for a and long he's time. not really like he was. Yeah. yeah. That was a good show. Um, but it's one of those I think he stands out at the character in the teen movie i don't think a lot of i mean cute kushnik and better off dead is similar but i don't think there's a lot of characters like that yeah. just full-on like i want to die i hate my parents yeah <laughs> like i don't want to do this don't make me do this and they they like hold on it several times in the movie those are the best parts of the movie yeah where he's like staring at the painting or when he tried to fucking drown himself and <laughs> it's great all that stuff is great it really sticks with it, it yeah. makes the movie like without that's what i mean like when i saying before i think without that i'd be like this is a throwaway john hughes comedy and cool but it's got this thing underneath it that it doesn't really stay on because that's not what you do as teenagers you don't sit around and talk about it like the actual writing and directing like pick it out and like really highlight it and during the day how much it affects them yeah but they don't have the language yet to really talk about it Mm -hmm. great yeah definitely cameron is great yeah he's the most realistic character in this entire film like in a film full of adults that are in a cartoon world yeah there's adults are all buffoons the uh all the kids in the film are basically like in awe of how stupid all the adults are are bored out of their minds yeah. and ferris is a magician sloan is like she doesn't seem very real like i'll get mm-hmm. into that a little bit more later but cameron is like the most realistic thing possibly of any teen comedy film about high school and the way people feel he's like i don't yeah. know if it was just he hit it dead on the head like just John Hughes writing and then also Alan Rock's like acting like nailed that style of fucking person because everyone knew someone like that at high school. You actually might have been that yourself a little bit or you might have found, found yourself in moments like that, like the way Cameron or what he was going through. Um, but if not, he invented it because I mm. knew so many kids in high school who were like moping around and uh, <laughs> just sitting there. What was me? Basically, just being like the quintessential emo kid um, without being emo. You know what I mean? Like, it was pre-emo. It was, you know, it was not being emo, but just like the kid who stares out the window wondering why in the fuck he's in this class. The kid who uh, wants to listen to Nick Drake albums and like contemplate suicide, (laughs) you know, because the girl that he likes doesn't like him. (laughs) You know, <laughs> Cameron is that character. You're right. That's what makes them interesting. Yeah. He is that character. And that's what makes their friendship interesting because, like, Sloan and Ferris are the kind of people they nail through life. Yeah. 
shit easy for them because they're young and they're pretty and they're smart and funny that they people want to be around them mm-hmm. right you know like the the whole school freaks out when ferris is like sick <laughs> and they like band together and raise yeah. money and shit amazing yeah. they keep calling the house and the sister and stuff um but cameron is someone who's struggling through life yeah it's so hard it's one of those characters i mean i was that kid not not really emo i wouldn't call myself emo but like that kid i was really depressed and it's like you need you wish you could just again it benefits looking back because you wish you could pull that kid out into the future and be like it doesn't get better these people these things change your feelings change they mature you're not going to be beholden to your parents your whole life Mm. and he's great yeah i don't think it uh i've seen it done as well it was done entirely i like how subtle it is yeah 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 because the movie's not about him yeah and in that way it becomes more powerful by not treating it with such focused attention to the point where it could be pandering or preachy or yeah. even just unrealistic. Yeah, it's yeah. Just enough. It's on the fringes, which is what life is like. It's either you're dealing with it and it passes or someone else is dealing with it. It's already always there. Exactly. I mean, there's so much about the story that goes through that affects Cameron so much. But at the end of the day, it's Ferris's story. And it's about him crafting this mm. perfect day off and doing it in some respects for his friends, but also for himself to have a great day. <laughs> and it's at the expense of his friends. Um, and he never really mm. says sorry for anything. You know, if anything, he gets upset with Cameron for not having a good enough time. <laughs> Come on, enjoy yourself. Yeah. It's like, I can't. I'm going to die when I get home. Yeah. I can't do this. There's so much like funny things about that. and It's a weird dynamic. And I don't know if you could ever really dissect everything that's going on there. Because there are just people like that, like who just, they're like magnetic, like Ferris, like that you can't, you just almost can't even be upset with them. They don't even know better. Like they're so clever mm. and smart and, you know, charming and, everything that like they can sell through, they can do so many things to piss you off and, you know, just really mess things up for you, but you just can't be upset at them. (laughs) And it's like, Mm. (laughs) yeah, so many bad things happen to Cameron in this film. Like, good God, the car thing. I mean, good God. The car gets stolen. That's so funny. Yeah. I got more about the car in a bit, but Emilio Estevez turned down the role to play Cameron. To which Alan Rucka said he thanks Emilio for every time he sees him, which is really sweet. Thank you for passing. That's really sweet. I mean, Emilio's brother is in this. You'll get there. But. Yeah. Okay. This Another is weird one. fucking weird. This is the weirdest thing I've ever read, and it's probably going to be one of the weirdest things I've ever said. Not in the general sense, because uh, I've said some pretty weird things before, and I've read a lot of weird stuff. Mm. Okay, you got me intrigued. But it's just the connotation around it of what we're talking yeah, about. The okay. implication. The implications. Um, <laughs> okay, so someone went out for the role of Cameron Fry, apparently, and didn't get it because they were too old. I read this and I was like, this is uh, this can't be true. But I've read it in numerous sources and I don't know if it's true. 
And that's the problem with the internet sometimes that you sometimes see something and you're not sure how to verify it. So I don't know if this is true. Who is that? It's someone who has appeared in the previous two John Hughes films that we've talked about on the podcast. John Candy? Yes. No, that definitely didn't happen. John Candy apparently <laughs> went out for the role of Cannon Fry. <laughs> if he did, it was a joke and that's a funny ass joke. Yeah. If he just walked it like sea of kid, sea of teenage kid. Or like skinny gangly fucking kid, like kind of depressed, kind of weird hair. And then just came, in comes the fucking giant jolly man. And it's like, I'm here to audition for the role of Cameron. Yeah. Um, how old are you? Uh, uh, 40. I'll be 40. <laughs> he was actually 35 at like, the time, um, but he he could pass 35. easily for 40, you know, in 1985 on the air film. And that's just, easily like. You know what? I'll go out on a limb. And I'd say John Candy could have pulled it off. <laughs> he could have. I bet he could have. Would have been great. <laughs> I want to see this film now. I'm sorry. I've been giving Alan Rock so much love for his portrayal of Cameron and how much I love the, ca- the character. No, fuck of Cameron. him. John Candy. Fuck him. I want to see John Candy. <laughs> <laughs> Relief to John Candy cut. Uh, Alan Ruck was friends with Matthew Broderick prior to, prior to filming. And he managed to get his role when his agent convinced the producers that he and Matthew Broderick had played characters that were the same age on Broadway when they were in Biloxi Blues together. Ruck is actually six years older than Broderick. Uh, Ruck was worried that he was too old to play the role, being 29 at the time, and he thought that he was out of really? touch. I just assumed they were the same age. Yeah, no, he's... That's funny. I mean, they, they both look like people in their 20s. Yeah. But, they both, yeah, they both look the same age. Yeah. Good for him, man. Look very young. He did say that when he was 18, he looked like he was 12. So it was kind of like, it was easy. Um, but yeah, he's, yeah, he said that he thought he would be out of touch and then he didn't know what was cool. But then he realized when he was in high school, he didn't know either. So he just decided to be himself. And he said the character, he's such a loner that he really wouldn't give a damn about that stuff anyway. He'd feel guilty and he didn't know it. And But that's it. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much like all worked out yeah hits now in the head uh, according to hughes the character cameron was largely based on a friend of his in high school he was sort of a lost person his family neglected him uh so he took that as a license to really pamper himself when he was legitimately sick <laughs> he actually felt good because it was difficult and tiring uh tiring to have to invent diseases uh but when he actually had something he was relaxed <laughs> I think I'm dying. Yeah. You're not dying. <laughs> That's great. That's every fucking depressed person or anxious person. Yeah. They say that, you know, you get a heart palpitation. You're like, I think I'm dying. <laughs> hey, what are you trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> we are Cameron. What yeah. I'm I think the thing about Cameron is he's obviously like a rich kid. His dad has this amazing collection of cars in this really future modernist house. And and yeah, you would have that sort of vibe of like, oh, this poor rich kid, all spoiled rich kid. He's he's got it so hard. And I get that. I totally get that. But at the same time, I'm trying to be like, because I go through things at times when I'm like depressed and stuff where I start thinking like, oh, this is stupid. Like, you know, like, I am, how am I depressed? You know, blah, blah, blah. But then you start feeling bad and guilty, but that's, that doesn't help things. And 
You just got to know problems are problems that everyone's going through shit. It doesn't matter what they are, what status they're in. Everyone goes through things and like, you know, not a competition real for everyone. And yeah, it might not feel as, uh, you know, horrible for poor little rich kid, but you know, he's going through something (laughs) and just think about that. You know, I don't think anyone cares. (laughs) It's a movie. Uh, Cameron wears this Detroit. (laughs) It's a movie. Cameron wears that Detroit Red Wings jersey in the film, uh, which is a hockey team from Detroit, cool instead jersey. of wearing uh, the Chicago Blackhawks Black jersey, which is an awesome jersey. He's easily one of the best sports jerseys, like for sure ever. Is it culturally insensitive? Yes, we don't know, but it still looks really cool. Um, very cool looking. <laughs> it can be both. Anyway, the reason why Cameron wears this is because it's a nod to John Hughes's home state of Michigan, where the Red Wings were his favorite team. And the Jersey itself was actually sent to Hughes by his childhood hero named Gordy Ho, who wore the number nine. And that was Gordy Ho's Uh, Jersey. Uh, And that was from his personal collection. He sent it to Hughes and he said it was really nice seeing the number nine on the big screen. So that's really sweet. That's really cool. All right, let's get into the rest of the cast. We've got Jennifer Gray. Oh, it's no. Jeannie Bueller. Jennifer Grey. Jennifer Grey, pre-Dirty uh, Dancing. No. You know? Is it before Dirty Dancing? This is a year not. before Dirty Dancing. She's, she's about to break big and then... It's, big. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a shame. You know, when you look yeah. at Jennifer Grey, because she was great, but like, she's still great, but it's, yeah. it's like a real comment on the culture where she made to feel weird about the way she looked to the point of changing it and to the point of ruining her career because that is what was definitive about her yeah what was um made her stand out it's horrible it's just like all the horrible shit with hollywood but mm. she's really funny in this she's film. great in this film man she's really good and that is a shame definitely um i remember that was sort of a thing i guess what like it's got it's been over 15 years now or you know longer but i remember like being younger and my mom talking about jennifer gray and blah 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 the nose job and then i was just like so sad (laughs) so sad uh but she's phenomenal in this film she's really fun i like the fact that she spends most of this time you know being resentful of ferris you know and yeah it's just his ability to kind of get away with anything and then she gets her she does get revenge. It's pretty interesting. Like I said earlier, Ferris is kind of a dickhead and he's complaining about not having a car. It comes down a lot about car. It's these subtle little things he says every so often about wanting a car. And Jeannie gets, or Shauna, Shauna, she gets uh, revenge <laughs> inadvertently <laughs> when her mother has to pick her up at the police station. And on the way home, her mother is telling her that she lost a business deal with the Vermont people and that she would have used the commission to buy Ferris a car. The thing that he wants most in the world. Oh, yeah, man. It's like, that's funny. It's intercut with like Ferris running home, you know? So there's a lot going on at the time. So it's kind of easy to miss, you know, you're not even paying attention and she got it. She got what she wanted yeah. in the end. So maybe that's why she let him off at the end. And she helped him out at the very end because she's got hers. She fucking. Oh, that's great. I never read it up. like that. <laughs> Ferris Bueller 2. Ferris Bueller's Revenge. <laughs> Just gets in a car accident. 
yeah. <laughs> with Jeannie in the car driving on the wrong side of the road. Yeah. You know? It's actually a really horrible film. Yeah, it's a really horrible story. Yes. Like Million Dollar Baby, but directed by John Hughes. The second half of Million Dollar Baby. But wouldn't you know <laughs> that this is a real story because it's the last thing that Matthew Broderick actually needs as a car because uh, while making this film, <laughs> let's get into it was during this true movie. Hollywood story stuff. While making this film, oh, no. Jennifer Grey and Matthew Broderick actually fell for each other despite playing siblings. Dude, that's your sister, dude. She's your sister, dude. She's got to be, and you made out with her, man. What's wrong with you, you pervert? (laughs) So the pair had actually gotten engaged, I think, and it was all pretty secret. No one knew about it until the day of August the 5th, 1987. They're vacationing in Northern Ireland, of all places just prior to the release of Dirty Dancing. So Jennifer Grey, I think, took some time out of doing, you know, some promo and stuff and was just, like, trying to get away. Her and Matthew went to Northern Ireland. Product was driving a rented BMW with Grey as the passenger. And for some reason, he crossed into the wrong lane. I don't know if it's because he's American. He decided he's driving on the yeah. wrong side of the road. Being an island. Or maybe he's driving on yeah. the right side of the road because people over here drop on the wrong side of the road. Either way. Oh, just, tomato, yeah. tomato. Like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was driving on the wrong side of the road. Into that again. And he collided head on with another vehicle, instantly killing the driver, whose name was Anna Gallagher, and her mother, Margaret Doherty. They both died. God, that story is so fucked up. And Broderick had a fractured leg and ribs and a concussion and a collapsed lung. Jennifer Gray's injuries, they were basically like severe whiplash, which later required her to have surgery to avoid paralysis. But holy shit. I think she was roughly fine at the time to like be able to, mm. you know stick through with Matthew Broderick it came out that there was this you know they were a couple it's like no one knew about it it. that's how it came out no one knew about it wow she stuck through with him and she was like saying it was you got break off at that point really horrible because she was like five days out of becoming America's sweetheart by being the star of Dirty Dancing and yeah it did eventually ruin their relationship they did end up you know, breaking it off. Uh, Matthew Broderick mm. said that he apparently had no recollection of the crash, and he didn't know why he didn't know why he was in the wrong lane. Uh, he said, "What I first remember is waking up in the hospital with a very strange feeling going on in my leg." And he was later charged with causing death by dangerous driving and faced up to five years in prison. But was convicted on the lesser charge of careless driving, and he was only fined about a hundred pounds. Oh. My God, so two lives were worth like a hundred pounds. They first Bueller is a magician. He got away with it. What the fuck? <laughs> he could get he could get out of anything, man. This is such a horrible story. Uh, I know. I, I've told a few people this story, and they're like, "No, I never knew about this." Yeah. So it's one of those things. I don't know if it was swept under the rug. It was at a time though that shit doesn't really didn't really stick like it does now. Yeah. Now people can't let anything go. Yeah. But it's like so weird it's one of those like it it tinges my 
uh, whenever Matthew Broderick is in something I'm watching, I, that's always in the back of my mind. And it kind of makes sense. There's always something, I feel like there's something dark about that guy yeah. <laughs> in the movies. Maybe not this one. Yeah. Um, so it, it works in other movies. Mm. Um, but no, horrible, horrible story. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know why he did it. He didn't know why he did it. I, I don't know. And you, it's, it's like a mistake. It, I get it. It's, but like, fuck it. It just now. sucks all around for everyone involved. You know. Yeah. Largely the people who died in their family, of course. What? But then, like Matthew Broderick. I mean, maybe it doesn't. He got away with it though. He got. Away, he paid a hundred pounds, and it's like, what? Oh god. <laughs> Jennifer Grey, Matthew Broderick, their relationship was ruined by it. I mean, I don't know. The whole thing is just so shitty. It's like a horrible story. Um, the victim's brother and son, Martin Doherty, he called the verdict a travesty of justice. But he later actually did forgive Matthew Broderick. And there was plans to meet around 2003. And then in February of 2012, when Product was featured in a multi-million dollar Honda commercial that aired during the Super Bowl. Oh, dude. Eat the room. Doherty said that this meeting still hadn't taken place. That's like nine years later. And that Matthew Broderick... Won't see me any doing car ads. He said that he forgave him, but Matthew Broderick obviously wasn't the greatest choice of drivers knowing his past. Yeah, not great. Not great. Let's move on to another asshole. <laughs> Thank you. Before I make a tasteless joke, yeah. Jeffrey Jones. Oh, yeah, even better. As Edward Rooney. Real-life pedophile Jeffrey Jones. <laughs> Dean of students. All right, so he got this role because of his performance in Amadeus. Cool. Fuck this dude. He was arrested in 2002 <laughs> yeah. for the possession of child pornography and soliciting a minor to pose for nude photographs. Fuck Jeffrey Jones. Fuck this dude. This is the worst thing about watching this film now, knowing this, <laughs> is the fact that I'm watching a man, a grown man, literally chase after kids. Chase. A grown man. Yeah, who it's is like watching a pedophile who is a convicted uh-huh. sex offender chase after children. And it's like Moonwalker. It's and- like trying to watch Moonwalker. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean, dude? <laughs> Good God. Uh. It's like, it's like, dude, what are you doing? You know there's all this shit around you and you've made a movie where you're just going after these kids? Fuck me, man. <laughs> uh, like the scene with Sloan on the steps. It's so fucking weird. Him breaking into the house. Ah, the best thing. The best thing about it is literally he gets what he fucking deserves. His character's yeah, the whole movie. Him getting shit on. He gets what he deserves, and fuck this dude. I wish it would happen to him over and over again. Also, he fucking tried to kill a dog in this film, and I have like that is fucking weird. He gives this dog like some fucking plant or whatever, and it knocks him out. And luckily, they show that the dog is still alive later, but. You poisoned that dog. Horrible. Bad guy. Confirmed a bad guy. All right. So people who don't suck. Edie McClurg is back 
is Grace Rooney's secretary, and she's fucking funny in this couple, film. Couple, couple again. Yeah, this lady, man, she's awesome. It was her idea to tease her hair up into the 1960s air, hairstyle. She felt that her character Grace was at her best in the 60s. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. She she give all these movie like all these really small roles like way more depth. <laughs> yeah. When John Hughes saw it, he was like, "How many pencils do you think you could fit in that hair?" Which led to the whole pencil gag of her pulling out all the pencils. Which again, it keeps happening. I talked about this with. Planes, trains, and automobiles. There's like those moments where John Hughes is so John Hughes, where he'll just like he'll there'll be people talking, but he'll cut away to something else that's going on. There's like people that are on screen talking about important things that deal with the movie, but he'll cut away to other things, like her pulling pencils out of her hair, and it's so fucking funny. <laughs> that is where his style lives in the weird stuff that he mm-hmm. films. If that, like I said, in the planes, trains and automobiles scene. Like I think it was in the airport. You see all these weird things going on and it just feels like real life kind of happening. <laughs> it's just like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Edie McClurg also, am ad- I producing? <laughs> <laughs> Edie McClurg also ad libbed the line. He's a righteous dude. <laughs> He's a righteous dude. And also improvise the, uh, impression of mr rooney when he's trying to stall during the phone call like with mr peterson just like oh 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 one second <laughs> she's great man <laughs> e mcclurg is so fucking good it's so fun. Yeah. all right so we have lyman ward is tom bueller and cindy pickett as katie bueller the parents uh i don't have much about these two i mean they're okay i i like them as characters that like their interactions with Ferris are hilarious because they always seem really like unbelievable, which is really funny. Like, you know, it's just that sort of strange, like, oh yeah, like um, oh, how'd you get so wonderful? And he's like, Years and years of practice. It's like so sickly sweet, it's really funny. Oh my god. But what it's great. They're the like, you know, perfect, like useless fucking parents who have no idea what's going <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but weirdly, another Example of uh, people from this film actually falling in love and getting together. These two actually got married to each other after making this film. And they were married together for a couple of years. And they had a couple of kids together (laughs) before they divorced. They did not name them Ferris and Jeannie. What a fucking waste. But Phil, did you know that (laughs) Ferris and Jeannie actually had two younger siblings that were cut out of the film? There's a longer cut of this film. Of course there is. No, but that doesn't fucking surprise me. Yeah. I don't know what <laughs> no, their names are. I think there is some scenes that are available maybe on that Bueller Bueller edition of like the DVD or something that was released. Clearly not important. Yeah, not important. <laughs> Cut out of the film, but they exist. And of course we have Charlie Sheen or Charles <laughs> Estevez as uh, the boy Charlie Sheen in the police station. Who may or may not have a name because it was more bullshit. Apparently, he was supposed to be some kid. It does not matter. But anyway, Charlie Sheen's role in this film was filmed in one day. And it was his day off uh, while shooting the film Lucas, which stars Corey Haim. I talked about that, I think, on the Lost Boys episode. Um, his role came, oh, yeah. came up mid-shoot and... He was recommended by Jennifer Grey because they were in Red Dawn together. 
So to get the look of being this strong out junkie, <laughs> druggy boy, he reportedly decided to stay up for 48 hours straight before he taped the scene. <laughs> he, it fucking looked like it. He looks so coked out of his head. It's crazy. And he just, yeah, he just turned to and he's like, drug. <laughs> 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 no, thank you. He went into the future and he saw himself no, and decided to come back and just like, this is, this, I will one day be this. He's like, <laughs> he's like nodding off. He's like nodding off on there and he wakes up. He's like, tiger blood. What? <laughs> All right. I just like flash forward for a bit. <laughs> oh man. Charlie Sheen. He's so funny in this film. To, to be fair, he looks amazing. Yeah. He's a voice of reason, really. You know, he's like, tells Jeannie, why don't you worry about yourself? Which is so funny. <laughs> yeah, fuck your brother. Did you blow him away or something? <laughs> All right, some other cameos. Of course, we got Ben Stein as the economics teacher. He basically just improved an entire economics lesson in this film. No lie, that's what he did. Very believable. He was a writer and he was an economist who met John Hughes through a weird string of like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, you know, like it traced mm. all the way back to Richard Nixon, uh, who he used to be a, a speechwriter for. And he met someone who, really? who introduced him to someone who introduced him to someone who introduced him to like someone who knew John Hughes. It was a weird thing. Uh, he wasn't really like, you know, he's, he was in films and stuff before this film maybe some TV okay. as well, but he really, is, he's not like really an actor and he just kind of like hit it big with basically playing himself saying Bueller. I mean, it's one of the most famous things about this film. Yeah. I mean, the only other thing I remember him in is the mask. Yeah. He's the guy who writes the book about the mask yeah, and yeah. Jim Carrey goes to see him and he's like, <laughs> no, the mask is a metaphor. We all wear masks. <laughs> they all wear a mask. Yeah. I mean, I remember him from when Ben Stein's money as well. That was a pretty popular <laughs> reality game show or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, Ben Stein, he's a weird character. Uh, his role was really only meant to be voice only, but he made people laugh and he just looked like a teacher. So they just stuck him on screen and uh, it, just, it works. It's that voice, man. It works so he well. Got that iconic voice. Yeah. It's like the white James Earl Jones. Yeah. But he also is a, he seems like he's kind of a dumbass man. Like, uh, <laughs> everyone, really? everyone in this film, smart? man, I, I tell you, everyone in this film is a piece of shit. Um, yeah, I think he's a trumper. Hot <laughs> take. Uh, oh, fuck. Thanks. And also, Christy Swanson, who's the OJ, uh, OG uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> the, o- the OJ. She's the OJ of the film. <laughs> the, who... Yeah, who the OJ apology, you know? She is the OG. That Buffy movie is OG Buffy. actually underrated. It's very good. The, the Buffy movie is good. Very it good. Is really good. Better than the show. Yeah. I said it. I used to prefer her as the Buffy because she was the OG one. She was the one I saw as a kid <laughs> growing up, and I never really watched That's the much. the Buffy? <laughs> I never, never watched much Buffy with Sarah Michelle Gellar. The Buffy. Is that her name? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You weren't um, a fan of her at the Buffy? As the Buffy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, 
she plays Simone, the girl who basically clues Ben Stein into Ferris's absence. And uh, mm-hmm. turns out she's a huge Trumper as well. <laughs> and what the fuck? The other man? day, she John was, Hughes Jr. had to pick him. The other day, she was uh, on Twitter suggesting that she be removed from this movie and also <laughs> from, God, another John Hughes film. I can't remember the other one she has where she doesn't even have a line in it because of cancel culture and the libs wanting to remove Trump from home alone Two, which was another home John Hughes film. So she suggests that Trump gets removed from home alone Two, that I should be removed from Ferris Bueller's day off. Fine. You didn't do anything. How about we just remove you from Twitter? Who cares? Nobody would notice. I don't think anyone wants to remove Trump from home alone Two. Like it doesn't matter. No, that's just like one of those things they do to like piss off fucking right wing people. <laughs> they should do it just to piss them off because fuck them. Like, I don't think anyone actually cares that much. Like, who cares? It's like a no. two second scene. It's like, yeah, Trump sucks, but it's not going to make me go. Oh, I don't want to watch this film anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Am I never going to watch fucking WrestleMania what is it, four and five? <laughs> yeah. Are those the ones with the Trump nine? Trump sitting front Trump row the entire time, like picking his nose. Yeah. Uh, all right. Someone who doesn't suck. Richard Edson is the garage attendant, the guy who basically takes the car for a joyride. Yeah. I knew him the guy from Stranger Than Paradise. Yeah, I knew him right as thing. a kid uh, because he played Spike in the Super Mario Brothers movie, uh, a movie that sucks yeah, but doesn't suck. Yeah, dude. Uh, it doesn't suck. We should do that. But do you know that. what he Good actually show. was known for? Uh, stealing cars. No, maybe. I don't know. He was the original no, drummer know. for the Sonic Youth. And I only just found that out. You're fucking with me. That no, that true. is absolutely true. Have I never heard that? I've n- I don't. Really? I never knew it. Like, I knew that he was Spike from Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. It's like, you know, without a doubt, the dude looks exactly the same. And I went to go double check to make sure I'm not just thinking he looks like the guy who plays <laughs> Spike. And then it was like. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, he was in Super Mario Brothers. And then I look Sonic Youth. What? He was the dr- he was the drummer in Sonic Youth. Fucking weird. Uh wow. Last but not least, certainly but not least, uh Louis Anderson appears as flower delivery man. Fucking love Louis Anderson. Life with Louis. Yeah, man, he's funny. <laughs> okay. You have two of the weirdest <laughs> fucking speaking people in the world in this film. You have Ben Stein and Louis Anderson with their fucking weird voices. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so featuring many Chicago landmarks, including the Sears Tower, uh, Wrigley Field, the Art Institute of Chicago. The film was John Hughes's love letter to Chicago. He said, I really wanted to capture as much of Chicago as I could not just in the architecture and the landscape, but the spirit. So that's why I ate a Chicago deep dish pizza. And my boy Phil over here swallowed a whole sausage. <laughs> ate a sausage. <laughs> yeah, didn't, didn't chew or nothing. <laughs> Shooting began in uh, Chicago on September the 9th, 1985. And then in late October 1985, the production moved to Los Angeles and the shooting ended on November the 22nd. And according to John Hughes, the scene in the Art Institute of Chicago was a self-indulgent scene of mine, which was a place of refuge for me. I went there quite a bit. I loved it. I knew all the paintings, the big paintings, the building. This was a chance for me to go back. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, he's a Trumper. I'm t- I no, know all the paintings. He was a Republican. Um, 
he yeah. he didn't live long enough. And he's dead now. He didn't live long <laughs> enough to become a trumpeter. Yeah. Thank God. Uh, to, so thank to God. disappoint us all, do we have that? Probably would have. Uh, yeah. This was a chance for me to go back <laughs> into the building and show the paintings that were my favorite. The museum had not been shot in until the producers of the film approved them. I remember John Hughes saying, "There are going to be more works of art in this movie than there have ever been there have ever been before." Recalled Jennifer Grey, and obviously, famously, the Sunday Sunday Day on the Island of La Grande Jatte by George Seurat is the painting that Cameron gets lost in. And that's such a great scene. A wonderful thing. I mean, I think I feel like I referenced it, maybe not recently. It must have been Plane Train. It must have been. Um, but I think I alluded to the scene, how much I like the scene. Um, and it's mostly because Dream Academy is playing yeah. in the background. Yeah. yeah. There's some good music in this, man. Uh, while shooting the... Oh, yeah. While shooting the production... They actually crashed both the baseball game and the Von Steuben Day Parade. Uh, fans have determined <laughs> that Ferris's day off was on June the 5th, 1985. We've shown the film on June the 5th at the PCC in the past because it's the day of Ferris's day off. So, uh, Oh, great. It, I've never noticed. This was determined because on this day, the Cubs played my favorite team, the Atlanta Braves, which can be seen on the TV. Da Bears. Da Braves. <laughs> which can be seen um, on the TV in the arcade pizza joint that Mr. Rooney goes to. And he's like, has that funny conversation with the guy um, where he obviously yeah. doesn't, he's just not even listening, doesn't even know what the fucking dude's talking about, doesn't know anything about sports because he's a square. He's an L7 <laughs> weenie. Uh, wrong film. But the film was shot in September, <laughs> and actually it was during a Cubs and a Montreal Expos game that they were actually filming at. But for some reason, they showed a Braves and Cubs game on TV. And that was just because it was set in June, I guess. And they just wanted it to be set in June. And this was done easily because the Braves and the Expos had similar powder blue away uniforms so the viewer wouldn't have wouldn't notice wouldn't really notice it's an illusion it's an illusion all right so for the von Steuben day parade in Chicago they actually entered a float into the annual procession that is a real parade that goes on every year and they didn't inform the parade officials that they were going to be doing that <laughs> <laughs> so the random shot of like the construction worker dancing in the film it, around the other construction workers, that was an actual construction worker caught by one of John Hughes's cameras during the sequence. Um, That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Jennifer Grey is actually in the scene, even though she wasn't really there. Like she wasn't supposed to be there is because uh, she didn't want to miss out on the action. So she wasn't supposed to be in the scene, but she disguised herself as an autograph hound and she just put on this bouffant wig. So she's somewhere there in the crowd. <laughs> in that crowd? I don't know if she was picked up by the camera, but she's in there. I mean, that's there. great. So, I mean, you'd have to go for, if you're like, oh, I've, I only watch one scene at this one. I mean, that's probably the most impressive thing Matthew Project did. If you did that, like in a real, yeah, at a real fair in front of like a huge group of people. Yeah. Like, and he done like a whole performance. Actually, to be honest, it kind of it works though because I think he was terrified. That was the thing. Mm. He was like, 
this is I think he said this is what it must feel like to be a rock star because yeah he like gets up and does this crazy performance they obviously they did some pickup shots to polish off the rest of the scene I think the next day they like did a radio advertisement said hey who wants to be in this new John Hughes film and a bunch of people showed up and they did like obviously like those choreographed scenes of all the people dancing and stuff that just definitely feel very like different from everything else that's going on is like that makes it feel like the blues brothers and like the come on and shake a tail feather like that sort of thing it just feels so different to the rest of the the scene but it works so well because it's just like i love this scene it's a like best scene in the film for me i think top scene in cinema because it's something about it it's just so fun it feels like i was sitting there watching it i kind of got chills like I was just like, man, this is so fun. This is like, this is what America could be. Like, <laughs> this, this is like <laughs> unity here. People just having a great fucking time, uh, you know, on a German day parade. You yeah. know, so uh, <laughs> that's what America could be. <laughs> no, it's a, uh, it's great though. It's a, uh, it's a great scene. Yeah. So Matthew Broderick, he actually was taught some pretty intricate choreography for this scene by this man named Kenny Ortega, who would go on to do the, I know that name choreography for dirty dancing the following year, which is legendary stuff. Maybe I'm thinking of Kenny Omega. Kenny Omega. (laughs) Fucking (laughs) Matthew Broderick actually hurt his knee though. When he was running through the neighbor's yards, when they were doing that chase scene at the end and, uh, he couldn't do much at all. So he went to do the scene and he was starting to do it. And I think John Hughes was just like, you know, just, just do it over again. Don't do the choreography and just kind of let the chaos (laughs) come over everything. (laughs) Engulf you. Yeah. And do your hair up. Yeah. He just fucking went with it and just did as much as he could do. And everybody around like probably just i don't know what would those people have thought do you think like they're sitting there watching someone that they might know the kid from war games the kid from war games <laughs> like on stage doing this, this insane and crazy like lip syncing battle before lip sync battle was going on you know like it was yeah. it's crazy Pretty Jimmy like, Fallon. so fucking fun like that's such a good scene man <laughs> it's really fun just typical chicago just another day in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, the car is one of the biggest characters in the film. It's this 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California Spider that Ferris convinces car. Cameron to borrow for the day from his father. It's his father's possession, prized possession. He absolutely loves He more. loved that car more than me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... Here's some info about this car. It's the only time that the actual car is used in in the film is like insert shots because for the rest of the film, they just made several replicas for it because this is a very expensive and rare car with only a hundred. Yeah. You just do the body. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Only a hundred of them were made. So they made like a few, like three or four replicas that were used for sort of different things, but they had a main one. It was universally hated by everyone on the crew. Uh, I think they had like a Ford V8 engine in it or something like that, or a V6 engine. It just like, it wouldn't start. It wouldn't work right. Like 
they just thought it was a piece of shit. Like the actors and stuff were talking about it. It just seemed like it was really funny to deal with. Regardless of this, the replicas have sold over the years for quite a bit of money. One in 2013 apparently mm-hmm. fetched $235,000. And Holy at the time shit. of filming, the original GT California Spider, not the one that was in the film, but like just like that, that car was worth $350,000. So that's how expensive Another it was. replica, almost worth that much. And since the release of the film, this car has gone on to become one of the most expensive cars ever sold, with one going at auction in 2008 for just under $11 million. Fuck. I feel like it's one of the things, it's a perpetual cycle, right? Like in the movie, Cam and Dad, it's like, this is like my pride possession. Mm-hmm. This is like the, you know, this Bush GT Spider. It's like the greatest car ever. They only made a hundred of these. And now it's like people buy that because it's like, oh my God, this is my pride possession. This the car from Ferris Bueller. <laughs> yeah. You know, like don't touch it. Definitely. It's like <laughs> someone keep going and going. Buying yeah. a DeLorean, you know, like, you know, it's just. Oh, what the fuck? Like pizza shit car, you know? <laughs> uh, apparently, I don't know how true this is because it seems like a lot of the stuff that I was reading it, like Alan Ruck was saying a lot of stuff, and I don't know how true it is. It just he might have just been joking around, but he has said that I've been fucking with him. Apparently, there was a version. Of, I don't know if they filmed it or if it was originally intended, and maybe they never filmed it and they just cut it out or whatever. But Cameron's dad was supposed to like be in the film, and he was supposed to like catch mm-hmm. the guys with his car out and about, and he went to go like look in the glove box to verify that that was his car because it's a rare car. And he was like suspicious of it and everything. And <laughs> he was supposed to go and get, you know, to go into the glove box. And then the guy catches him and basically like, you know, threatens to call the police or something on him. And it's like this really weird thing. Like the, the parking garage attendant guy catches him and kind of like, yeah. So there was also this bit where Cameron's looking down in the building and he says, Oh, I think I see my father down there. And then they like cut to that weird thing. Yeah, of him, yeah. Like, you know, w- him pretending to be like one of the stock traders or something. Apparently Cameron's dad was actually supposed to be down there. And <laughs> they would have cut to him. So there's so much going on in this film. Like, and then the last thing that I read that I did, I just didn't know if it was true or not, but Alan rock basically said that like, Cameron was supposed to admit to his father what happened, and his father was supposed to have killed him by throwing him out the window. <laughs> <laughs> nah, okay. <laughs> there, I think he's joking. Yeah. That would have been a bold the ending, though. It, it should have been the other way, though. It should have been like ending. Cameron killed his father, <laughs> or Cameron, Cameron's dad would, you know, like a ghost or something. <laughs> All right, of course, we got to get to the soundtrack. No official soundtrack for this film was actually ever released. Uh, as John Hughes really? felt the music wouldn't work together on an album. I mean, it wouldn't at all. <laughs> Could you, like, Dream Academy, The Beatles, yeah. Day Bao Bao. Yeah. Which, um, uh, shout out Paul. Paul, g- <laughs> Paul gave me that on vinyl. I have that single. What, the Day Bao Bao? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah I got the Day Bao nice. uh, Shout out Paul. Shout out Paul. So yeah, like uh, he apparently did send out a hundred thousand seven-inch vinyls to kids on his 
fan mailing list that had a couple of the songs. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. It had a couple of the songs from the film, not any of the big ones. It was just a couple of things he actually owned the rights to. Um, and mm-hmm. he said that towards the end of the, like the end of sending those out, it was costing him like $30 a record to send them out, but it was just like a labor of love. So that's really, that's really sweet and really nice. Notably, yeah. as I mentioned earlier, Duncan Shane is in the film. It's a recurring motif in the film. It's sung by Ferris, it's sung by Mr. Rooney, it's sung by Jeannie as well as the big scene at the parade. Um, Obviously, we have Twist and Shout at the parade. So this is funny. Paul Mm -hmm. McCartney approved of its use for the film, but he was actually pissed off with John Hughes for adding trumpet over top of it during the parade scene, saying, if the Beatles wanted horns in the song, they would have bloody added horns. (laughs) What do I know? I only fucking wrote the bloody thing. And... John Hughes was like, "Man, there was horns at the parade that I crashed, you know, because I, I just crashed yeah. the parade and no one knew I was actually going to be filming a movie there. And um, there was horns there in the background, so I had to have horns over it. Fair enough. Paul McCartney needs to relax. Suck it, Paul McCartney. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then of course, you ain't been shit since wing. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course, the big song of the film we've joked about a couple times is." Oh yeah, aka Day Bow Day Bow Bow. Oh, Day Bow Bow. Yeah, yeah. It was a song by uh. a Swedish band Yellow, and John Hughes just wanted to put it in this film. He just thought it would be the weirdest fucking song Great to put song. in this film. It was not a hit at the time. Like it might have had this small little success, but no one really knew it. And then this film puts it in the movie and then the next thing you know it gets put in the secret of my success and then it just kind of gets continuously put into films and then mostly as an homage to this or the secret of my success and it largely just becomes the song to play during like the object of someone's obsession which is like the car to ferris he's just like he wants a car so bad and oh yeah yeah sees his friend's father's car and really just fucks his friend over. But it's okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. It's a movie. I mean, it's one of those music cues, like, uh, that every movie, you'd, it's like uh, every movie ever. Yeah. You know, when someone is, like, falling in love with someone, they play fucking Dreamweaver. <laughs> yeah, Dreamweaver. Every movie done. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> every movie done. It's <laughs> so annoying. And it's kind of like that with Dave about Yeah. You're just waiting for the, oh, yeah. yeah. I just think of always sunny now. More than Ferris, I think of always sunny. Yeah, definitely. Because it's from it's it's already it's in it happened to be in one of the best episodes of that show. Yeah, and it, yeah, yeah. Just another thing. Definitely so funny. Pepe Sylvia. <laughs> Pepe Sylvia. Pepe Sylvia. <laughs> All right. So Ferris Bueller's Day Off was released in June of 1986, making 70.1 million on a 5.8 million dollar budget she's correct it was a big hit with critics and audiences and it's often regarded as one of the greatest team comedies of all time like i said earlier and it's been parodied it's been influenced uh you know it's influenced films it's been paid homage to in many films tv shows and commercials like we were saying always sunny although that was more of a secret of my success thing but you know it's 
Deadpool, they did it. Oh yeah, yeah. He did. He done. He done the whole first building. Like you're still here. Go home. <laughs> yeah. He done the whole thing. He like he literally they did the it's the same like fucking hallway yeah. shot and this him wearing the same robe. It's nice to see it yeah. pop up in occasionally. They did a they did an easy A with him as him as Stone. There was a bit of that like. Uh, I got a packet, got a packet full of tension. Yeah, yeah, very much, yeah. Uh, and then there's, yeah, Family Guy did the amazing thing with Stewie and the painting at the at the museum, you know. So oh, yeah. A lot of, like, times this has popped up a lot. Um, yeah, and, you know, Matthew Broderick and John Hughes, they stayed in contact over the years about a possible sequel, and it just never really happened, and it's probably for a good thing, and they, they both agreed to, before John Hughes had passed as, as well, that it's like, it's probably the best that they never did it. And uh, mm. it just kind of st- stood the test of time. But in 1990, they did make this really shitty TV show called Ferris Bueller that lasted 13 episodes. It was the Ferris Bueller show? Yeah. It lasted like 13 episodes and it oh was god awful and it got canceled. Was Matthew Broderick in it? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, the Good. the most interesting person that was in it was uh, Jennifer Aniston. Jennifer Aniston. Oh, really? Played. I don't know if she played Sloan, but she was in the she was in the TV show. <laughs> Actually, she might have played Genie. Maybe she was Genie. Yeah, she played Genie. I think. She looked like a Genie. Yeah. She looked like. Yeah. And Jennifer Grey would later be in Friends. Yes. Yes, she was. Rachel, isn't that weird? Thing come together. It's like that. Bill Murray. Played Peter, played Peter Venkman in Ghostbusters, and, and there was a Ghostbusters cartoon. Yeah, and Venkman was voiced by the guy who played Garfield in the Garfield cartoon. Oh yeah, Bill Murray would go on to play Garfield in yeah. a live action movie. <laughs> Not that interesting now that I say it out loud, but if I find it fascinating, that both stuff. Well, Phil, if you want to uh, get into some fun stuff as I close off this episode, if you'll let me, if you'll just indulge me, if you'll let me. No, let's end it there. <laughs> get into some theories. Oh, shit. There are theories with Ferris Bueller. I mean, this movie's already fucked up with most of the cast, so I don't. I doubt the theories are even going to touch the actual event like, surrounding the movie. But Yeah. Go ahead. Have you ever heard of the Ferris Bueller Fight Club theory? No, <laughs> no, but I'm so excited. All right, so the Ferris Bueller Fight Club theory it basically states that Ferris Bueller is just a figment of Cameron's imagination, like Tyler Durden is to the narrator of Fight Club. Oh, what? And Cameron is dating Sloane? And that Sloane is a girl that Cameron secretly loves, but hasn't ever interacted with before. Okay. Okay. So. That could work. One day, while he's lying sick in his bed, Cameron lets Ferris steal his father's car (laughs) and take a day off. And as Cameron wanders around the city, all of his interactions with Ferris and Sloane and all the impossible hijinks are all just played out in his head. This is part of the reason why the three characters can see so much of Chicago in less than one day. Cameron is alone, and he's just imagining it all. (laughs) 
Oh, for fuck. I mean, I feel like that, that a theory like that with every movie, not not specifically referencing Fight Club, but I think at any point, any movie ever made, at some point, someone who had seen it had said, maybe it was all a dream. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just the go-to theory, and it's like, it's not inherently interesting it works yeah. because Ferris Bueller is like an embodiment of like the ego and the id and all these things Cameron wants to be and doesn't yeah. want to be like I understand it but fuck off <laughs> it's no fun that way you know it's just no fun if Ferris Bueller is a fucking ghost or whatever His I actually kind of love Ferris it Bueller. I kind of love it though because Ferris is just so magical and like like I said earlier, he's just like a magician. He can do anything and he do, he gets away with everything. And it's like, it's perfect because he just doesn't exist. And Cameron's this like insane, like character that's like, just like, you can see how it could just be about just him and in, in his own mind. I mean, if you look at my background, Phil, this uh, alternate art, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, what if you wake up in a different person? <laughs> I mean, I look, I'm kind of, I can follow you there because the, the, the real luck yeah. of Ferris Bueller Cameron learning that he has to stand up to his father. Yeah. And that happened. And so everything, I mean, every, look, every movie is like that, right? Yeah. Usually it's just a small change in the character, but they have to go through an extra, extraordinary situation in order to realize that that's why movies are interesting. So you could see the whole movie of like he's in bed sick thinking about how much he hates that fucking car and he's like, you know what, I wish. I fucking wish I would take it out with all my friends and we'd ride around Chicago, we'd have the best day ever. And I'd bring it back and then I'd fucking destroy it. Or <laughs> just that bit of real at the end. You know, he'd find like, you know what, fuck it. Yeah. He'd go there and he just spins the tire and the car goes out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't actually work. It's actually quite interesting like that. I feel like it's another movie in my head at that point. Basically wrapping up the theory is that it isn't until he mm. destroys the front of the car in the fugue state does he finally get a grip and decide to confront his father, after which he imagines a final impossible escape for Ferris and the storybook happy ending for Sloane by Sloane saying, he's going to marry me. And it's the girl that Cameron knows that he Aww. can never have. <laughs> Uh, night guy finished last. <laughs> the evidence for this theory is that there are saved Ferris messages all over the city. This represents how Cameron wishes that someone would care about him and also helps the idea that the film is merely a fantasy. It is sort of fantastical how much the city comes to around <laughs> Ferris. True, but then it's another incel movie, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> this is not an incel movie. This is a man who's... Really, yeah, maybe it is. Um, he doesn't start a fight club. He just destroys his father's shitty car. It's fine. Um, Cameron's father is controlling, and he is very unhappy. He has a very unhappy home life. So creating a popular outgoing friends would help make his existence happier. The ending fates of Ferris and Sloane resemble that from a storybook. Sloane is happy and Ferris narrowly gets back home. This wraps up the story arc of his friends because after this, they all kind of go off to go to college and or, you know, Sloane is alone in town doing her final year of school without Ferris. They definitely wouldn't have stayed together. 
uh, Cameron trashes the car in his fantasy and realizes that he has to stand up to his father. And then he blows off his imaginary friend who offers to take the blame to prevent him from facing his fears mm. since he doesn't need these imaginary friends anymore. And it is unknown if he actually trashes the car. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Maybe he just did in his head. I like to think he did. And then Sloane is likely based on a girl that he has a crush on, and Ferris is most likely based on a popular classmate whom he aspires to be like or to be friends with. And it allows himself to imagine that he what it would be like if he had if he was popular and he had popular friends. It actually makes Cameron a lot more of a uh, depressing character. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, way more depressing if he's imagining everything that we've seen in the movie. Yeah. I'm not going to read this, but there was one other theory I found that is kind of funny where they had someone on that fan theories on Reddit uh, basically Mm -hmm. said that they were watching Ferris Bueller's Day Off and they kind of imagined that Ferris Bueller is actually living a Groundhog Day scenario and that every day... He's basically just trying to perfect the perfect day off of school. <laughs> and he'd finally done it. And at the end, when he finally gets home, and his parents ask him when he's in bed, and they ask him, how did he end up so perfect? And his response was, years of practice. <laughs> <laughs> That's an exhausting day to live over and over again, though. Yeah. God damn. <laughs> You're being chased by a pedophile. <laughs> oh god all right phil (laughs) ferris bueller's day off i'm gonna end it here because what more can be said about Mm. this and listeners out there uh it's been a silly episode i think we've just been having a lot of fun being silly and it's going to be a little (laughs) bit more silly because we're going to talk about our favorite uh person who got away with murdering two people with a vehicle um next week on the podcast with a T shall now be known. A film that we actually did name drop. Well at least Phil did. Colin our shot. Earlier. I did. A Matthew Battery film. Starring someone who could have played Ferris as well. Big clue. I'm gonna leave it on there. You figure it out. So everybody. As always, you can follow us at the PCC Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. I wish people could see your face. You're just like <laughs> gwinny eyed. You're doing like the, the dog with the shifty eye. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the PCC Podcast. And you can follow me personally at Tolverol on Twitter, Instagram, and my band's page on Facebook. Uh, or you can pop us an email at podcastprincecharlescinema.com. Let us know what you think of the Ferris Bueller theories. The Fight Club theory, is there any is there any any weight to it? You know, does it float? And come back next week. We'll have fun stuff. Phil, where can people find you? Uh, I mean usual place and far away sad on Twitter and in real life. Doug I met on the IG on the IG. On the gram. <laughs> on, the <egg. laughs> on the gramophone. <laughs> yeah, on the IG. I hope people like the episode. Yeah. I mean for Bueller the classic and it's you know, talking about it for obvious reasons, we're in a perpetual day off. Yeah. I don't think anyone's having as good of a day off that Ferris Bueller did, but we can try. Yeah. It gives us something to aspire to. Definitely. At the end of the day, it's a movie about hope and escaping from pedophiles. The monotony of, of life, you know? Monotony of it. And pedophiles. <laughs>
<laughs> Who needs it? Who needs it? Huh? Eh. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, oh. everyone out there, as always, you can hit us up at patreon.com forward slash the PCC podcast. $5 or more a month gets you bonus episodes. Um, yeah, if you want to support us, head over there. We're making some fun content. We'll be back with some more episodes a little bit later this month. And uh, in the coming months? I don't know. Head over to breadcrumbscollective.com, our new website for the PCC podcast, for breadcrumbs, for a drip town in Lemery, Maine, for our new show called Franchises coming soon, and for anything else that we create. Uh, there's ideas floating around. I got sent an idea earlier today that I really like, so I hope that we can do this and uh, create new fun things for everyone. I hope you guys are enjoying it. Let us know uh, at breadcrumbspod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Phil. I mean, this is it. We're done. This We're is done. it. It's the final episode. <laughs> yeah. You guys are still here? It's over. Go home. Seriously, go home. <laughs>